Good evening and a very warm welcome to Above Bar Church this evening. My name is Nick and it's my pleasure to, to, welcome, to welcome you. You might have noticed it's a little bit different tonight if you, if you come regularly. And yeah, tonight we're not doing what we normally do. We normally uh, will have a Bible reading and a sermon and prayers and singing. That's not what we're doing tonight. So tonight is what we call Real Lives and we have a special guest uh, we're going to have a bit of a, an interview and find out a little bit more about them. And then Amy or Ewing is going to tell us why we can trust the Bible. This comes at the end of a series we've been having this January and February, looking at some real contemporary, sensitive and, and difficult questions. Over the last six weeks, we've had visiting speakers, and not all visiting, some uh, of our own speakers, looking at... Um, identity and how to flourish in a culture of self-invention. Thinking about why does God care about my body? Why does God care about my gender? Why does God care about my sex life? And all the speakers that have come and answered questions on those topics have opened the Bible and through their talks and through Q&A have tried to give answers to those questions kind of based on what the Bible says. And there was a wonderful question last week. I took a screenshot of it uh, on my phone, I'm just going to pull it up. That said, why should I trust this ancient book called the Bible? And that was given to Andrew Bunt, who was here last week. And his answer was, ask Amy next week. So <laughs> Amy is going to come in a, in a short while. Amy or Ewing is an international author, speaker, and theologian. And it's a great privilege to have her with, her, with us this evening. So Amy, would you like to come join me? We are going to be doing Q&A again this evening. So up on the slide, there's going to be a QR code. So if you can use your phone to take a snapshot of that and get to the website, www.pigeonhole.at, then throughout this evening, through, the, through the Amy's talk um, and during the break, you'll have an opportunity to enter your questions. It might be that even if you haven't got a question, you can, if you go in th through the QR code, you can see questions that other people have submitted and you can vote for them. And that will guide me later on as to if, if a lot of people have voted for, for significant questions, I will ask those questions first at the top of the list. So if you do that, you'll really help me out. If you need to get your phone and hold it at a funny angle, that's fine. Or you can type the, uh, the address out. Right, so we're going to get to know Amy a little bit now. Amy, thank you so much for coming. It's, it's a privilege to have you here this evening. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Do you want to just tell us, start by telling us something a little bit about you, your background, where, where you grew up? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was actually born in Australia, which you may be able to not tell from my accent. Um, my mum and dad were working out there. My father was a lecturer at the university there. And um, he, well, they had quite a sort of dramatic conversion experience uh, where they had both been atheists, not believers at all, and through a process of questioning and coming to grips with evidence, as well as an encounter with God, they, they kind of became Christians. So moved back to the UK when I was young, and I grew up most of my childhood in Birmingham, and then went to university at Oxford and loved studying there, and really kind of met my husband there, and have lived quite near that city 
um, ever since. And I basically work in, in theology, and I kind of give talks and lectures and write books and get the opportunity to travel around a little bit. I've got three children as well, three boys, um, and the oldest are their twins, and they're 17, which is, yeah, quite unbelievable. And I've got a 14-year-old uh, as well. Super. Yeah. I might talk to you later. I've, I've got two boys, but they're uh, both preschool at the moment. Okay, so maybe you yeah. can give some advice for a, a few <laughs> years on. So, you, good to hear your, your parents playing faith in, in Australia. How about you, Amy? When, when did you come to, to faith? Yeah, so, so um, I saw a huge change in my parents, a very dramatic um, transformation of both their belief systems, but also who they were as people. And that had a huge impact on me um, growing up. My parents were both quite intellectual and had not, um, like, had this idea of not kind of indoctrinating us as children, that we would ask questions and, you know, find our own way. And that really happened for me, I think, as a process as a child, and then again, as a teenager, when you're kind of making a lot of decisions about how you're going to live your life. Um, and then as a student, um, I definitely had a personal faith and relationship with God, but that was really tested at university, particularly intellectually, actually. So a lot of the questions probably that we're going to be addressing tonight were things that I needed to struggle through myself. And... Um, I guess, work out, is this really true? Is, do I just believe it because I want to believe it or because it kind of makes my family happy that I believe it? Or, you know, is God actually really there? Did he come in the person of Jesus? Can we really trust the Bible? All of these questions. And I came to conclusions myself based on, based on evidence and personal experience. And I've been following Jesus ever since. Great, thank you. Um, in, in preparation for this evening, I was reading through your, your website, and uh, you says you're an author, uh, theologian, historian. When did you first get interested in, in, in his history, church history, theology? How, yeah, what was the routine? Yeah, so I'm going to sound like a complete nerd <laughs> now. <laughs> but when I was about 12, I went in Birmingham to hear... Um, lecturer actually speaking on some of this similar topic to what I'm speaking about tonight. He'd come over from America. Some of you might have heard of him. He's called Josh McDowell. And he was doing a whole day conference on the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. And I don't know why my parents thought I was old enough to go, but I was really, really interested. And um, so that, I think that began there. Also growing up in Birmingham, you know, there's a heavy influence of Islam as well. So I had a lot of friends who asked a lot of questions, particularly about the textual side of, of, of the faith and of the Bible. So that kind of sparked my interest as well. Um, and so I guess it was just a growing curiosity about whether this is actually true and robust or not. Um, yeah. Super, thank you. Uh, and I, I've associated you for a while with the OCA, the Oxford yeah. Centre of Christian Apologetics. What kind of got you into that into, in terms of... Yeah. yeah, so I helped to start that, actually. Um, so the, I guess, coming out of, of postgraduate study and finding that 
there, were, there was a lot of interest in, in some of these big questions about life and faith, both in the church but also in the wider culture. Um, it, it sort of became clear that there was a need for a centre of theology sort of really focused on um, that, that sphere, which we call apologetics. That sounds like apologising, and it, it doesn't mean that. Um, the Greek word apologia comes um, from the concept of what a lawyer would do if you were accused of a crime. Um, your lawyer would get up and speak on your behalf and would give an apologetic for you. So it, it speaks of giving a, a legal or a reasonable or a persuasive defence of something being true. And so within the Christian faith, all of the questions that we might face about whether there's a God who is loving in this suffering world or questions like we're going to look at tonight around the Bible would fit in that sphere of theology. And for me, that was of interest because it's really where theology is out of the ivory tower or it's even just out of you know my personal belief system. And it sort of hits the streets as to whether this is public truth, whether this is actually robust and true, and whether when people ask questions and, and really kind of kick the tires of the Christian faith, um, how does it actually stand up to scrutiny? So, yeah, I helped establish that centre, and that's been a real and, joy. And uh, Callum, who's our young adult yes. pastor, went on a course Exactly, yeah. So, have you got any dirt on him? Callum, what a joy, always a joy. Um, no, I'm afraid no dirt whatsoever. <laughs> he was a bit of a choir boy, I think, really. <laughs> well, thank you so much for making the journey down and being with us uh, this evening. I'm going to leave you um, up here on your own now for a little while. Great. You're going to give a presentation to yes. us on why we can trust the Bible. That's right, yeah. I think thank we're going to have the lectern, if that's yeah, all right. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much. So um, it's, it's great to be here tonight to have the opportunity to um, look at some of these questions. As was said earlier, we've got a Q&A afterwards. Obviously, this is a massive topic. So it may be that you've got a really specific question within it. Get it into the Q&A um, as soon as you can, because we'd love to, to make sure that your question is answered tonight. So I don't know what you think about when you think of the Bible, but regardless of whether we believe it's true or has any relevance to our lives today, it is undeniable that it's had a huge influence on the civilization of the Western world and even on the English language. Lots of Jesus' sayings recorded in the Bible have become proverbial without people knowing that their origin is, is in the New Testament. Phrases like the salt of the earth, love thy neighbor, do unto others, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the blind leading the blind, judge not lest you be judged, the one who lives by the sword dies by the sword, a wolf in sheep's clothing, cast the first stone, eat, drink, and be merry all come from the Bible. Jesus and the Bible have had an extraordinary impact on the subsequent history of the world, and our language is just a part of that. And the books that contain the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, known as the four Gospels, could be seen as, in some sense, the most um, successful creation just on literary terms. It's been more influential than Shakespeare or other great texts. 
these four Gospels have been completely international. Homer's writing has been translated into 40 languages, Shakespeare into 60, and the New Testament into well over 2,000. The Bible is every publisher's dream. It's the bestseller every year, 44 million copies of it sell. And so I suggest to you this evening that it is worth exploring this question of whether the Bible can actually be trusted, whether it contains historically accurate accounts of who Jesus actually was and is, and whether Christ can be known personally. To come to a conclusion about that for yourself is is a really important thing to do. In my own family, um, my father was born in Eastern Europe, and after the Second World War, my grandfather, who was a scientist, um, was living, or they were all living under Soviet occupation. And he escaped, they all escaped as a family in a small British plane. But my grandfather, a, a brilliant scientist, forbade his family from ever reading the Bible or from talking about God. He was such a committed atheist. So there was no Bible and no God talk in the home that my father grew up in. And it was only, as I mentioned earlier, that when he was an academic professionally himself, that he encountered evidence for the Christian faith, that he even picked up a Bible and began to read it. That's how it came onto the horizon of my life and our family, and I'm so glad that that happened. So tonight, we're going to ask a few questions. We're going to ask whether the Bible can be trusted, um, and we're going to ask whether we can explore, how we can explore whether what it records is actually true. And so I want to ask you this question. Not just how do we know whether something in the Bible is true, how would you know whether anything is true? And have you noticed that it's kind of getting harder these days and we need to check our sources more often perhaps than we used to? I remember a few years ago now hearing with great surprise that the city I grew up in, Birmingham, is known to be, globally, on the international stage, according to one expert, a place where no non-Muslims go. Let's just look at this clip for a moment. Can we have the next slide? Thanks. Oh, you haven't got the video. Okay. Right, well, let me tell you the video. The lovely white man here on the right-hand side is um, a self-described terror expert. And in this clip on Fox News, he began to hold forth, he's American, about how in Britain's second largest city, no non-Muslims are able to go. They just simply can't go there. There is a total no-go zone. Birmingham is now a completely Muslim city, according to the Fox News experts. An expert telling a national and international news outlet on air that Britain, second, uh, Birmingham, sorry, Britain's second largest city is simply no-go, his quote was, it's actually a separate country, came as a surprise to my friends who still live there. We began to wonder, will passports be issued for Birmingham? 
how do we know if anything is true? In this sort of situation, we'd have a way, wouldn't we, of checking whether what the expert said was true or not. We might check, I would suggest, other records outside of this expert. We check sources of information that are reliable to see whether his claim holds up. So in the case of Birmingham, we might check data from the census, from photographs, from school records, from all sorts of other sources that would help us to see and know that it is simply not true that no non-Muslims live in Birmingham. Then we might begin to ask questions about the motive behind the source. Why is someone saying what they're saying? And that might lead us to a conclusion about whether the source is honest or not. Fox's terror expert eventually himself admitted that he was in fact wrong. His motive had not been to accurately portray reality. He had a different agenda and he ended up needing to apologise for it. It set off a whole series of memes on Twitter called hashtag Fox News Facts, which came up with some other interesting wild claims. So we might need to fact check with other sources. We might need to query the motive behind what we're reading or hearing. Perhaps we could also check more personally. In this room tonight, some of us might have a personal connection with somebody who lives in Birmingham. And that person might be able to tell us whether the claim is true. And we would have good reason to conclude on the basis of that person's personal experience that the Fox News tariff expert was in fact wrong. So what about the Bible? How can we know if it's true? Well, I would suggest that we can use exactly the same process to ask whether it's accurate. We can check historical records and we can come to a conclusion by comparing the historical records of the time with what's in the Bible as to whether what is in the Bible is accurate or not. We can ask questions about the motives of the writers of the Bible and ask about how their motive affects whether what they're saying is true or not. We can ask whether what they write is coherent, whether it reflects reality as we know and experience it today. That would be a kind of fact-checking, just like we might do with Birmingham. But then we could also check more personally. We might ask questions, just like we did of our friends who live in Birmingham. We could ask from a personal angle, does the Bible actually enable God to speak in a real way into our world today? So we're going to do some fact-checking tonight together as we think about the Bible. And we're going to think for a moment and ask the question, do other sources back up the Bible? I could give you loads of examples. I'm just going to give you a couple tonight. Let's take the famous story from the Old Testament of Jericho. In the book of Joshua, for years, skeptics thought that the story of the walls of Jericho falling was a myth. Can we have the next slide, please? Dr. John Garston made a, a, a remarkable discovery in the 1930s. 
He says this, as to the main fact, there remains no doubt. The walls fell outwards so completely that the attackers would be able to clamber up and over the ruins of the city. Now, this is striking because in a siege situation, walls fall inward. They're pushed in, not outwards. In March, on March the 5th in 1990, Time magazine featured an article called Score One for the Bible. Archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon claimed that Jericho's walls had not just fallen outwards, they'd fallen suddenly. And many scholars feel this was caused by an earthquake, which may also explain the damming of the River Jordan at the same time. And additionally, grain was discovered, which shows the city was conquered very quickly. In other words, archaeology supports the Bible's account. Or we might take another example in um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 1. A man called Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, is mentioned. But other ancient sources at the time tell us that there was a man called Lysanias who was important, but he actually seemed to live 60 years before the time of Jesus. So a lot of people thought this is really good evidence that Luke made a mistake. He heard of this person and he just inserted him into his account. Well, then it turned out that Luke did not make a mistake because an inscription bearing the name of Lysanias found in a place called Abila much more recently was found and it's dated between 14 and 29 AD, exactly in the time frame Luke was talking about. That's an example of an outside source backing up the specifics of what the Bible say. There are loads of other examples. Another one might be a Roman historian called Tacitus, who wrote between um, AD 60 and 120, and he says this, Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. Clearly, Tacitus is no great friend of the Christian faith, calling it a disease. But he's considered one of the greatest Roman historians. And here, he situates the death of someone called Christ in history. And he links it to two other known historical persons, Pontius Pilate, who governed Judea under the Emperor Tiberius. Tacitus verifies that the death of Jesus doesn't stop the movement that Jesus founded and that that movement eventually establishes itself in Rome. Now, that may not seem that remarkable to you if you've grown up even vaguely connected to the church. You might have heard the name Pontius Pilate, for example, in one of the creeds of the church mentioned. Or perhaps you've read a gospel and you've, you know about Pontius Pilate washing his hands and Jesus going on to be crucified. But actually, the existence of Pontius Pilate um, you know, wasn't accepted by, by scholars as a historical reality for quite a long time. There was controversy about whether he was a real person until in 1961, a first century stone inscription, was dedic- which was dedicated to Pontius Pilate in Caesarea Maritima, was found. And there you can see 
a slide of it. So we fact check, like we did with Birmingham. We check details and we ask ourselves the question, does this book hold up? And when we do that, it's interesting to me how strongly the Bible comes out. Now, the thing about the Birmingham, we also wanted to ask a question about motive, if you remember. And what's interesting about the Gospels in the New Testament is that two of the Gospel writers very clearly tell us their intention in writing. One of them, Luke, puts it right at the beginning of his Gospel. The other one, John, puts it at the end in chapter 20. But let's just look at Luke. Luke says, therefore... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So Luke and the other gospel writers say that they are recording events with scrupulous accuracy. Luke's intention in writing is that future generations could read about Christ confidently, knowing that historians had thoroughly researched the eyewitness sources and that the material was compiled in an accurate way. That's what he tells us his motive is. This reminds me of a diary entry by um, General Eisenhower. I told you a little bit about my grandfather. My husband's grandfather was... um, Uh, British and was in the Second World War, worked on um, radar. He was a brilliant scientist as well, actually. But towards the end of the war, um, he was in in an administrative role. And right at the end, obviously, Americans had joined the Second World War. um, uh, The British staff would work for an American general, and an American would have a British staff member. And my husband's grandfather was Eisenhower's British aide. And so he actually held the pen at the signing of the peace in Reims and, in, and um, went with Eisenhower to raid Hitler's bunker as well. But here's Eisenhower's diary entry. The evening after he had first visited one of the death camps at the end of the war, He said, I visited every nook and cranny of the camp because I felt it my duty to be in a position from then on to testify at first hand about these things in case there ever grew up at home the belief or assumption that the stories of Nazi brutality were just propaganda. Some members of the visiting party were unable to go through the ordeal. I not only did so, but as soon as I returned to Patton headquarters that evening, I sent communication to Washington and London urging the two governments to send instantly to Germany a random group of newspaper editors and representative groups from the national legislators. I felt that the evidence should be immediately placed before the American and British publics in a fashion that would leave no room for cynical doubt. With foreboding insight, Eisenhower predicted the possibility of future generations seeking to deny what the Nazis had done in those camps. Luke was trying to do something similar, to accurately record for future generations what had happened. So we're going to spend the next part of the presentation focusing on whether we can test that claim. Namely, the Gospels claim 
to be based on eyewitness testimony? Can we trust that claim? Now, when it comes to asking whether we can trust that claim, there are a few key questions we can interrogate, and these have been brilliantly developed by a scholar based in Cambridge at Tyndale House called um, Dr. Pete Williams. If you want to find out more, you can read his work. But what he does is to help us ask questions as to whether the Gospels really have a legitimate claim to being eyewitness testimony. And the first question he encourages us to ask is where were the Gospels written? So according to historical tradition, not all four Gospels were written in the land of the origin of the events they record. So Mark's Gospel was written in Rome. Luke's Gospel was written in Antioch or possibly Rome. John's Gospel was written in Ephesus. And Matthew's gospel was written in Judea. So a sceptical person would be well within their rights to say, why should I trust a document claiming to be based on eyewitness testimony that is written a few years after the event and isn't even written in the location? And that's exactly what critics have asked. Why should we trust these gospel writers writing hundreds of miles away after the event? How, do we, how gullible are we to believe that this is eyewitness testimony? What that means is that we can ask questions of the gospel writers. How familiar were they with the land they are talking about? Do they know the geography, agriculture, botany, architecture, traditions, burial practices, economics, language, law, and personal names, the culture of the place? We could do a lecture on each of those, and thankfully for you, we're not going to. If you've ever visited a place and, and, and then left again, you know how difficult it is to recall and get those kinds of details right. If you've never visited the place, it's very, very hard to get the nuances of culture right. So we're going to do it with one of those aspects. We're going to ask a question about the personal names. Second question then, do the gospel writers call the characters the right thing? Now, when we examine the time of Jesus, a study has been done of 3,000 names that people were called back then in the very specific area of Judea. And that was using archaeology, inscriptions, and other written sources. And what it shows is that Jewish names in Judea, Palestine, show a different frequency statistically from Jewish names elsewhere. The argument began with a researcher in Germany who made this list of all the names that people were called back then, and it's called the Talalan Lexicon of Jewish Names in Late Antiquity, Part 1. And it's not a gripping read, I promise you. The interesting thing about this study is that a, a scholar called Richard Borkham a theologian noticed it. He read the study and he thought to ask the question, if we lay alongside this study of what people were actually called 
in first century Judea, Palestine. And what the Gospels say they were called, what will happen? So if we take Jewish male names from, and you can do it with female names too, but if we take Jewish male names from Judea, Palestine in the first century, we see this as the order of popularity. Um, the next slide, please. Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus, Ananias, and so it goes on. If you take the nine most popular Jewish male names in Judea, Palestine in the first century outside the New Testament, they are 41% of names used. If you take them inside the New Testament, they are 40% of names used. It's a pattern showing up over four writers writing their accounts far, far away from the land of the origin of the story. That is extraordinarily difficult to get right. Now, in case you're not suitably excited by this geekdom, let's do a quick comparison with Jewish male names at the same time in a community not living in Judea, Palestine, but living just a few miles away in Greco-Roman Egypt first, in the first century. Remember that Jewish communities, you know, there was a diaspora living all over the ancient world and a large Jewish community in Egypt. Most common names for men in the Jewish community in Greco-Roman Egypt in the first century, exactly the time of Jesus, are Eleazar, Sabbateus, Joseph, Docetius, Pappus, Ptolemaeus, and Samuel. Now, names like Sabbateus, Docetius, and Pappus are in the top most popular names for a Jewish male in first century Greco-Roman Egypt, not very far away geographically at all from Judea. If you've ever been to modern-day Israel, you'll know that. But those names don't even occur in the New Testament. Why not? Because the gospel writers aren't writing about Jewish people living in Greco-Roman Egypt. They're writing about something that happened in a very specific place, in a very specific time. And even though they're writing miles away from the land of the origin of the story, they get this detail right. And they get it right statistically, verifiably. Now, I wonder if you would know how name patterns, statistical patterns, you know, are affected. Let's take English-speaking countries. We could say, you know, popularity of male names in the 1970s in Australia or in America, or we could even do it regionally in Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and England, or we could do it you know, in Yorkshire versus Cornwall, and you and I would really struggle to do that, right? We would struggle even with the internet. The gospel writers carry the right statistical proportion of names, but they also get the right feature of names. Let's imagine we live in a fictional world where a mother calls to her sons 
for supper to come and eat at the kitchen table and they actually come. Imagine that, right? So we're in that world, but now we're in the first century. First century mother in Judea opens her back door. It's time for food. She's calling her son. She calls Simon. Hundreds of Simons would come running for food, okay? She would need to distinguish which Simon is she talking about. And in the same way, any any story, any text that is coherently about this time and based on eyewitness testimony would know when to do that, when to distinguish the name and when not to. And that's what you find when you read the New Testament. We could look at a list, a famous list of disciples that comes in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 2 to 4. It's a really good example of this. Because the popular names are distinguished. There's a distinguishing feature about them. And the unpopular names are just on their own. So here's the list. I'm keeping this slide up because you can see the list of popularity. Simon, who's number one, is called Peter and Andrew, his brother. So there's a distinguishing feature about him. James, he's number 11 on the list. High-ranking name, he's the son of Zebedee. John, he's number five. Again, high-ranking, he's his brother. Philip is only 61 on the list of most popular names. He's plain old Philip. Bartholomew is only number 50. Again, low on the list, so no qualifier. Thomas doesn't even make it in the top 100 names. He's just Thomas. But Matthew, he's number nine. He's the tax collector. James, number 11, is the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, number 39 on the list of most popular male Jewish names in Judea in the first century. Low ranking, he's on his own. Simon, he's number one. He's the Canaanian. Judas, number four, is Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. You see this in reported speech, in dialogue that is reported. You see it throughout the Gospels. The statistics about names have only been known by academics since 2003. Yet there is this extraordinary correlation between what people were actually called and what the Bible says they were called. And it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a list from Palestine, that the gospel writers are basing their accounts of what happened on eyewitness testimony. If they were making stuff up miles away, they would not be able to get this sort of detail right. Remember I said you could do this study with archaeology, land formation, burial practices, botany. There are all sorts of layers of detail within the gospel accounts that lead to a warranted conclusion that what is written is based on eyewitness testimony and it can be trusted. So we fact check. We fact check by asking questions about external sources to the Bible. We fact check by testing, you know, this claim of motive of whether this really is eyewitness testimony And then I want to just address one last um, question very briefly before we go into the Q&A time. What about the miracles? Surely you aren't asking me in the 21st century to believe a historical account that includes miraculous claims. 
brought about the miracles. It's interesting to me that the miracles recorded in the Gospels were witnessed by hundreds of ordinary people, including a lot of people who were highly sceptical. But even in the accounts that the Gospels can have, people concluded, or some people concluded, through what they saw and experienced, that God was intervening in some way in our universe to show that he is real. One scholar writes, one of the most compelling features of the whole sweep of ancient opinion regarding Jesus, this is slide 17, sorry, I've skipped through a few, regarding Jesus is his reputation as an exorcist and healer. It is no exaggeration to claim that it is one of the most widely attested and firmly established of the historical facts with which we have to deal. Another scholar writes, thus, even when strict critical standards have been applied to the miracle stories, a demonstrably historical nucleus remains. Jesus performed healings which astonished his contemporaries. Now, if you're here tonight and you feel highly skeptical about that particular claim, I want to encourage you to consider why. Have you been raised in a worldview or a belief system, or perhaps you've adopted a belief system that tells you that this universe, this world, is all there is? All there is is nature. And a miracle would be to break natural law. Well, C.S. Lewis addressed that exact query in his work on miracles. And he used an illustration from maths um, to explain how he thought you could hold together a belief in natural law and science and the idea of God and the miraculous. So he, he said this, he said, if on each of two nights I put 10 pounds into my bedside drawer, I wake up and I now know that I have a total of what? 10 plus 10? 20, thank you. But if I wake up on the next morning and find only 10 pounds in the drawer, I don't conclude that arithmetic has been broken, but possibly the laws of England. Okay. What's he saying? He says, 10 plus 10 equals 20. If I, don't, if I only find 10, I don't think maths is broken. I assume there's been an intervention from outside. The interesting thing about the gospel writings about miracles is that they don't lead people to question the laws of nature. The gospel writers assume the laws of nature are intact. Dead people stay dead. Tombs have dead bodies rotting in them. But they do open us to the possibility that the author of those natural laws could, if he wanted to, intervene. And if he did that, that would be a sign to us, just like 
Finding only £10 in the drawer warns us that there's been a burglary or a robbery. The biblical idea of a miracle is that it's much more than the event itself. It's a sign pointing beyond itself to the author of natural law who's intervened. We wouldn't be able to recognize a miracle as in any way significant if there was no natural law. And in fact, if you do go on to investigate the biblical miracle claims, the most important of which is the resurrection of Jesus, you may be surprised by what you discover. Richard Swinburne, who was um, a philosophy professor at the University of Oxford, but he's retired now. But he spent a long um, time in his career uh, examining the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and running it through probability theorem. He used Bayes' theorem in assessing the probability of the resurrection of Jesus assigning mathematical values to different factors like the probability that there's a God, the nature of Jesus' behavior, etc. And he concluded that the probability based on all the evidence of the resurrection of Christ having actually occurred was extremely high. He said, allowing for the artificiality of ascribing very precise numbers to each factor, the number he used in his calculation was 0.97. The evidence to a philosopher like Swinburne overwhelmingly supported the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. When we look at the context of the New Testament miracles, men and women involved were down-to-earth people who understood how the real world works. When Mary discovered she was pregnant, her betrothed her boyfriend Joseph knew he hadn't slept with her when he discovered she was pregnant he didn't think we're in the bible now people it must be a virgin conception he assumed a natural reason for the pregnancy he was gonna get rid of her it was only when he experienced an angel appearing to him himself that he concluded this is real when Jesus walked on water people were terrified Ordinary reactions to supernatural events. Often people imagine that the miraculous claims of the New Testament are a bit like a person who's asleep, having a dream. You enter the dream world. You enter the religious bubble. And within inside that bubble, it self-referentially makes sense. Just like when you're asleep, you don't question the fact that you're flying around or weird things are happening. You just go with it because you're in a dream. And people think that's what religion is. That's what the miracles of the Bible are like. No. The miracles of the Bible occur within the natural world that you and I know and experience. And the reactions of people who observe those miraculous occurrences understand the law of gravity and they understand um, that, that dead people stay dead. They present a natural reaction to supernatural experiences. I think that gives the accounts a ring of truth. So if it's at least possible that there is an intelligence who brought this universe into existence, it's not impossible that that author of natural law could reveal himself within his creation. So do you remember how we said we might want um, to call someone in Birmingham that we know to tell us the truth about what that city is really like? I want to just end by suggesting 
But the question of whether the Bible is true is not only an intellectual question, it's also a personal question. Does the Bible speak to and about me? Does the Bible speak into the big questions of this world, of what it means to be human, of what our purpose is in this life, of what suffering means, of whether there's any possibility of forgiveness or redemption? Can the Bible be trusted? I want to suggest that it is worthwhile to fact-check your sources, to question the motives of the writers, and to ask whether the Bible describes reality and stands up to scrutiny, including the miracles. And I think that you might, like millions of others before you, find yourself answering, yes, the Bible can be trusted. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Amy, for that. We're going to take a short break now. Uh, We're going to come back. If you could be back in for quarter past. Um, So you've got 10 minutes just to refill a drink, grab a snack, take a comfort break. Um, Also use the time to hopefully we'll have a QR code back up again. So if you haven't yet submitted a question, please use the 10 minutes to do that, and then we'll work through the Q&A. Thank you. Well, I hope you have had a chance to refill your glasses. Uh, welcome back. We're going to go into our Q&A section now. Thank you so much for all those that have been submitting questions. Right, we're going to start, Amy. Um, so our first question, I'm going to try and put it on the screen if technology works. Let's see if that works. So the question, how do we know which parts of the Bible are accurate? Genesis is considered a poem, but the Gospels as as historically accurate. How do we decipher which books in the Bible are which? Thank you. Um, That's a great question that sort of goes to um, something that I didn't really touch on tonight, which is this um, reality that, of course, the Bible is 66 books written over... um, 14, 1500 years by more than 40 authors. And so you're dealing with different, different kinds of material. And so um, as we were talking sort of specifically about the Gospels tonight, because that's really what kind of addresses who Jesus is, and it's quite a good place to start if you're investigating the Christian faith, we're looking at what they claim this text is, which is that it's eyewitness, based on eyewitness testimony. Um, so then with the rest of the Bible, how do, you, how do you navigate and how do you read it and know what type of material it is? And I think it is really important that we ask that question and do the work. Um, so in one sense, you can just read the Bible in English and take it at face value, and that will give you a, a certain level of, of engaging with it. But if we really want to... to find out what it means, we're going to need to um, look at things like genre and ask the question, what's the author's intention here? So one of the things that's interesting about Genesis actually is you have different types of writing in that book. You definitely have poetic genre, but um, in, in multiple creation accounts actually in different styles, which addresses the reality that sometimes when we're talking about certain things, 
you know, only poetry's going to do it, and other things, you know, we, we, do, we do want a more kind of chronological, historical approach. So um, there's lots of resources that can, can help you do that, but it's the right question to have in your mind as to what type of material is this and what is the author's intention in, in, in writing this, rather than us just kind of jumping in with our cultural sort of hobnail boots on and making a lot of assumptions. Thank you, thank you. Amy. Can I say one more thing? Go for it. Um, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who was asked, "You don't take the Bible literally, do you?" And he said, "Well, it sort of depends on what you mean by literally, because the Bible says that Herod is a fox, but I don't think he's got pointy ears and a bushy tail. And it also says Jesus is a door, and I don't think he was flat wooden and swung on hinges. You know, what I understand when rhetoric is being used, I understand when metaphor and." other types of literary devices are being, are being used. And often, yeah, where things go wrong, it's where we haven't sort of paid attention to that, I guess. Super. Next question is, is also looking at the Gospels in another part of Scripture. Um, so even if I think the Gospels are a reasonable record of events, why should I trust the moral teachings in the letters? So I guess sure. that's thinking of Paul's letters. Yeah. So I think that's a, um, a really important question and thank you to whoever asked that because I think it, it gives us an insight into you that you're a seeking person um, and that you understand the distinction between um, allowing for evidence to take you so far but also that a decision needs to be made at some point as to what your belief actually means. Um, and so, again, within, within the Christian faith, there's very much a, a sense of, you know, human beings being created in the image of God, and that means we have the capacity to, to reason. But also human beings being created in the image of God, which means we have the capacity to make moral decisions. So the Bible doesn't present itself as a moral book for people who don't particularly believe in God or, you know, people who are seeking to kind of do the right thing and live a good life. And if you follow these rules, you know, this is how society should be, should be ordered. It's actually doing something slightly different. So I, I would say if, if you don't really believe in God and you haven't come to know Christ personally... I agree, why would you believe in the moral teachings of the rest of the New Testament? The moral teachings of the New Testament are not there to save us or to morally reform us. The moral teachings of the New Testament are about people who've come to know the living God, which Jesus describes as birth, an ontological change that happens and once you've come to know him and you begin to follow him, then you need help on that journey. It's called discipleship. And that's where the moral teachings fit in. They don't make you good and they don't make you, you know, a Christian. And they don't make you, in a way, anything without God himself through Jesus having actually changed your heart and life through that forgiveness that comes through the cross. So I would encourage you to begin by scrutinizing 
the Gospels to begin by scrutinizing the person of Jesus. And it's only if he is God incarnate, it is only if the forgiveness he offers through his crucifixion is actually real and tangible and true that it would be worth even considering the moral teachings of the New Testament. But I suggest to you that if it is true and you do encounter the living God, then actually what you want changes. You want to live in a way that pleases God. You want to live in a way that you aren't the author of your own moral or your own moral decisions. You want to follow. And that's the point at which the rest of the teachings of the New Testament come in. And sometimes I think the church has, you know, we, we haven't done a great job. You know, we, we, we're sort of seen as... We've got our megaphone and we're, you know, we're preaching our moral rules and trying to impose them on the culture and on society. And that's kind of the wrong way around. So I sort of get your question. Super, thank you. Uh, next question is around Bible translations. Uh, how do we know if there are inaccuracies in our own translations or other language translations as some, some as other languages have different words which change the meaning of some verses? Okay, um... So, yeah, I guess this kind of question of translation is both a strength and a weakness, potentially, right? It's a strength in the sense that um, there's, there's been a desire amongst followers of Jesus from the very earliest moments of the Gospels even being written, of the New Testament even being written to an effort to translate it. So if you look at the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, you're not only looking at Greek manuscripts. You know, there's Indian and African and other languages that are there really early. Um, and so translation is, is a strength in the sense that, you know, here we're not reading the Bible in Latin anymore in English, in England, because it's been translated into English so that we could read it in our mother tongue. We don't have to have a level of education where we've learned other ancient languages in order to access God's word. But I guess one of the weaknesses of that and the potential dangers of that is that the translations begin to, you know, stray away from or be in some way culturally influenced so that they're not really um, based on the actual original text. And so if you've heard the phrase, the Reformation, um, and actually most, lots of reforming movements within the church has always been about going back to the original, going back to the original language and, and making sure that we're not just um, translating it in such a way as to fulfill our own kind of cultural bias, but we're really coherently um, looking at the original. And there are a number of ways you could do that. Number one is that certainly the English translations don't go off other, other English translations. They always do go back to the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, and, and you can see that in the texts where efforts are made or where there's a, a difficulty about translation of a word, you might find a little footnote that alerts you to that. Um, yeah, so one way you could think of doing it is there's a thing called an interlinear. If this is a major concern for you and you don't really read Greek or Hebrew, you can actually get... Um, an interlinear Bible which gives you the actual Greek word with the translation of the Greek word into English which you could then go and check elsewhere and the translations on either side of it 
And um, that would be one way of addressing the concern. Super, thank you. Um, the next question, I guess, is around kind of, have they been airbrushed? It says, the winners write the history. Mm -hmm. The Bible is written in or for the Christian perspective. Accounts against Jesus and Christians have been removed. Are the events happen the same as how it was written? Thank you. Well, I read to you tonight a source material from Tacitus that called, uh, called Christians a disease and, you know, absolutely poured scorn. There are plenty of ancient sources pouring scorn on Jesus and the church. So um, I would say they haven't been removed demonstrably. There are accounts from the time. But what's interesting is that even those accounts from the time that seem to, um, you know, seem to be written against Jesus actually end up verifying some of the core central facts and underpin that, that lots of these things, you know, did actually happen. Um, I think the second thing I would say is I love that the winners write the history phrase, that idea of a victor's narrative. But what's really interesting about the Bible, even just on, um, from a literary point of view, is that unusually that is not the case here. So if you look at the Old Testament, you have the experiences and suffering and oppression of women described. You have very, very powerful people like a man called Isaiah, who was a diplomat who could walk into a king's court, and he writes one of the books of the Old Testament. And you have very, very poor people, a person like Amos, he was the dresser of sycamore fig trees, the dirtiest job in the society, the lowest job. And he wrote a book called Amos that's in the Bible. So you actually have really just in literary terms in the Old Testament, really interestingly, not just the victor's narrative. And then when you look at the New Testament, similarly, think about who the gospel writers are. It's not Herod. It's not Tiberius or Tiberius's historian Tacitus. It's fairly unknown or previously unknown fisherman, a tent maker, that was the Apostle Paul, a tax collector, Matthew. So what's fascinating is the, that the accounts that, that survive, even the, the inception of the Christian faith at all described in the book of Acts written by Luke, is describing a movement that should have died and stopped, been stopped when its founder was crucified, like thousands of other people were crucified by the Romans. So you have this story of a kind of insurgent um, grassroots movement. It's even written, the Gospels are even written in really bad Greek called Koine Greek. You know, my, one of my sons is studying proper Greek at, at at, um, at school and you know it's like the it's like the lowest level of the language is what the new testament's written in i think that's fascinating yeah so it's actually a strength of the bible that you have these multiple perspectives and even if you're not a christian you're not religious it's interesting because it isn't a victor's narrative thank you the next question i guess is about why the Bible has the books of the Bible that it does, i.e. the canon, as it's yeah. called. How do you deal with the claim that, that it was the Council of Nicaea that determined the canon and therefore created the Bible as we have it? 
Yeah, so um, actually historically there were two councils of the church that met that were the most significant around the canon. By the word, that word canon means a reed or a re- measuring rod. It's like a standard. The idea is, you know, um, it's like a, there's a pass mark when you take an exam that you've got to get past that mark, right? So it's a, it's a measure, the word canon. And actually, there were two councils of the church um, that were most important. One was AD 393, the Council of Hippo, and then 397, Carthage. So Nicaea was kind of, you know, important, but mainly for other reasons. So um, when you look look at the question of who decided what was going to be the Bible and what was not going to be the Bible, which I think is what this question is really driving at, the image we might have in our minds is that a group of, let's face it, men got together and they were quite powerful men, right? Because they're in positions in what has become now the institutional church. They get together for their kind of leadership meeting and they decide that's in the Bible, that's not in. And that's our kind of visual image of, of what happens. That actually isn't what happened. Because you can track what happened through the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, which occurs a lot before AD 393 or 397. So the process of what became viewed to be scripture is fascinatingly, overwhelmingly an organic process in the early church as people translated and spread and made copies of these documents and there are, you know, Above 40,000 is the manuscript tradition just in, you know, that, that would be, we'd be talking about for the New Testament. So it's thousands and thousands that survive. It would be way more than that that were made and spread throughout the known world into multiple different languages as well. So there's an organic process that happens. So by AD 3, late 390s or the 390s, you've got a situation where you've had this insurgent beginning grassroots movement, claiming there's been a resurrection from the dead, starting with 12 people that then grows to a couple of thousand at Pentecost and then sweeps through the ancient world. So by the 300s, you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians. What has swept through the ancient world with that movement is the four Gospels, Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's letters, the book of Revelation, you know, essentially what we have is the New Testament. That's what's being copied and spread. But as that happens, as happens with all movements, other ideas and other leaders begin to come in and say, I want my gospel also included. And then they attach the name of a person who seemed to be significant, the gospel of Thomas or, you know, the gospel of Judas or whoever it was. And those gospels are written hundreds of years after the events and not based on eyewitness testimony. So church leaders realize, okay, we've got what we know is the New Testament circulating like fire spreading through the ancient world. But now we've also got these other newer things which are slightly different, some of which are claiming, you know, um, authenticity on the basis of having the name of someone who sounds like they were one of the 12. So we need to do something about it. So they get together not to say what's in, but really to say what's out. Now in that process, 
some books of the Bible that did end up being agreed on as being in were discussed as, is this a fake? Is this something that's taking a name that shouldn't be attributed to it? Is this something that was written later and not earlier? And, you know, so discussions happened, particularly around things like the book of James and also concern around the book of Hebrews because there was question of authorship. So those councils met. Yes, there were some questions. But ultimately, the process was an organic process which is underpinned by um, the manuscript tradition, um, as you see it. And even... Anyway, sorry, this this is a bit of a long answer. But what you don't have is a group of men deciding we're giving our authority to it and now that's it. You have a group of leaders realizing we're facing a real challenge of can we keep the whole, the whole of what always has been authentically um, true and protect it in a way. Does it meet this, this read, this, this measuring rod? And that was always to do with authorship and originality. Those were the two key questions. So something like James, the book of James, those early church fathers met and the deliberations were, can we account for which James wrote it? The Syrian church, which was next door to where James had been bishop, had the book of James in there you know, in their collection. They knew it was from him, that it was authored. They'd had that passed down, and that's how it was resolved. So there wasn't some sinister group of men deciding what it was going to be and conferring authority on it. But at a certain point, it became important to say, we recognize that this is what the canon is. These are the books that meet the standard, the measuring rod. And, and so these are what are going to be continue to be circulated and we're not going to add to it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that was the, rather long. <laughs> the, the next question, it's got two parts, and I think you've kind of answered part of it. Uh, so the first part, the Bible has different interpretations and has been changed during different eras. So I think you've kind of addressed that. But the second part, but Muslims claim that the Quran is God's word and hasn't been changed at all. What's your opinion on that? Sure. Um, so... Yeah, with just a, just a tiny bit on that first clause, because there's a whole process addressing this question in theology, and it's called textual criticism. Has the Bible been changed? As the manuscript tradition has gone along, are there variations? Are there differences? You know, how can we be sure that what we have is what is original? And with any ancient text the means of coming to a conclusion about that question is called textual criticism. So you're asking questions um, about variations. And what you'll see in any English translation of the Bible is that where there are variations, you will see a letter note in the margin saying, the earliest manuscripts don't include this. There was a question on pigeonhole asking why does Mark's gospel have um, a longer ending and then not a longer ending. And that is exactly one of those examples. The earliest manuscripts finish halfway through chapter 16 and then there's there's a couple of later ones that have this further account. And so because in all honesty... Textual criticism says there's a bit of a question mark here that goes in. There's a note in the margin. 
So what you're going to find with the Bible is there's an openness about the manuscript tradition and not a fear of there being minor variations in the manuscript tradition. In fact, if there weren't, you wouldn't believe it. It's things like, mostly things like um, spelling differences or in the Greek language, for example, meaning isn't affected by word order. So in some manuscripts, you might have the same sentence, exactly the same words, but different word order. That would count as a variation. You know, um, you know how in German the verb must go at the end. Greek just isn't like that. Or there would be some words that can be spelt two different ways. You know, if we were in New York tonight and I were to say to you, how do you spell colour? You would say C-O-L-O-R. You would be wrong, wouldn't you? But if we read the word C-O-L-O-R, we'd know it meant colour. We'd know a crazy American had written it. Sorry if there's any Americans in the house. But the meaning isn't affected. So again, that might be an example. So with Islam... One of the central claims of the Islamic faith is that although Muhammad didn't sort of perform any miracles, the Quran is the sort of authenticating miracle of the religion, and it hasn't been changed. Now, um, it's obviously a highly, highly sensitive um, subject because we're talking about people's um, very sort of dearly held beliefs, but on an academic level it's just simply isn't isn't the case that there that that there isn't a textual tradition with regard to the Quran. The big Quranic collections in libraries around the world um, very you can just go to the Bodleian Library in Oxford and you can see in the Quran collection there there's variation. And in fact the um the hadith which are the um the accounts of Muhammad's life written by his closest compatriots and friends. So not, not written by someone who disbelieves in Muhammad or his religion, but people who, who knew him and love him um, and who were Muslims themselves. The, the, the account of the compilation of the Quran that comes in the Hadith talks about um, the third caliph, which was the sort of ruler of the Islamic world. Remember, um, Islam was never only a religion, it was always a political movement. So Muhammad was, was, you know, judge and political leader as well as religious leader. So the third caliph after he had died, so was called Uthman the Magnificent. And the Hadith talk about how he noticed that there were differences between the Qurans people were, were reading. And so he asked Muhammad's most trusted scribe, to make a search for all the available um, manuscripts and Quranic materials to gather them together. He's called Tabit ibn Talat, and, and to um, create an authorized version of the text and then dispose of all the other earlier materials and burn them. That's in the Hadith. That was, that was the plan. And so... Um, that's quite extraordinary I think however what what you see from the evidence of what survives today and there's a um, there's now a whole online sort of encyclopedic source for textual criticism for people studying Islam at an academic level that you can you can look at and see but the biggest find happened in Yemen in the 1960s and it was over 50,000 um, manuscripts which which show undeniably textual development and variation um, within the within the Quran tradition. So, 
Um, so what I would say to this question is, with any ancient manuscript, there's an expectation of a textual tradition. The question is, what does it show and what does it say? And I think when you look at the New Testament, what you see is not a process of an authorized version and get rid of everything else. You see an organic process. You see handwritten manuscripts. You see different word orders and different spellings. You see sometimes a longer ending, say, to Mark's gospel. is actually only a couple of examples in the gospels of longer sections like that. The other is the... Um, the woman caught in adultery in John's gospel. And that's to do with, um, uh, there are two types of material that the New Testament was written on. One was called papyrus, and the other is called parchment. Parchment was expensive. It was made from the skin of animals. And papyrus was cheap. It was made from um, reeds sort of glued together and laid out in the sun, but it was brittle. So the earliest manuscripts are pieces of papyrus, but often they've been, they've been broken off. They're not sort of huge, great scrolls of, of you know, the, the longer entire New Testament, say the Codex Sinaiticus from, from the 300s, which you can go and see in the British Museum. That's, that's on, um, on parchment. So that's how it could be that you might not have had the longer ending to Mark's Gospel on the earliest one because it might have been broken off. So, um, sorry, again, a long answer. <laughs> There's so much to say. <laughs> it's great that you're here, and, and it's great hearing all your expertise coming through as well, Amy. Uh, here's a question. Uh, I find that the God of the Old Testament, who seems violent and harsh, and the God of the New Testament, loving, peaceful, and forgiving, uh, just yeah. are so different. Why is this? Thank you. Um, again, I think this is a really important question, so thank you to whoever asked it. Um, I, think, I think I would like to address, in a way, the premise of the question, because actually, um, I think in both the Old and New Testament, you have a portrait of, yes, a God who judges evil, and a God who is loving. So you see um, in the Old Testament extraordinary examples of this loving, compassionate God who you know, calls people to have the year of Jubilee, who calls for, for justice as well as mercy, um, you know, who allows the first person in this text who names this God to be Hagar, you are the God who sees me. Um, you see that in, in the book of Genesis. You, so it's an incredible portrait of, of a loving God and a God who, who judges. And then in the New Testament, in the teaching of Jesus, you see this extraordinary ethic of love. Love your neighbor, love your enemies. Greater love has no one that he lay down his life for his friend. God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, the loving God. But you also see in the New Testament warnings about judgment. Why does Jesus need to die in our place for our sins? It's to, to rescue us from the penalty of sin, from, from judgment, which Jesus himself preaches. So I think you see a loving God who judges in the Old Testament and a loving God who judges in the New Testament. So there is some continuity. 
There is also discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. So the Old Testament comes to an end and is really brought to an end. And Jesus is kind of clear about that in lots of different ways in the things that he says. And so when you read the Old Testament, you will, you will read of things that are disturbing to us today. And I want to be honest about that. You're going to read of God commanding people to go to war and kill other people. And you read that today and you think, how could we believe in this God? How could this God be loving? Now, as a Christian, I would read those Old Testament texts primarily through the lens of Jesus, this idea that there is continuity, but there's also discontinuity. An era of time is brought to an end. But I would also read those texts through that lens of the idea of a good God actually judging evil. Now, um, I don't know how you feel about that today, but my understanding of what that really means was changed quite dramatically in my late 20s. My husband is a vicar in the Church of England, and we were living in Peckham in southeast London. Some of you might know it, some of you might not. It's quite gentrified now, but when we were there, it it was really not... And um, there was a particular woman in, who, in our church who'd come to gloriously come to know Jesus. And she was the same age as me. We were both 27. But she'd had a really, really different life from me. I'd had the privilege of amazing education and opportunity, and she had not. She had five children. And each one of those kids had a different dad. And the dad of the second child was a crack dealer, and very, very violent man who was in prison. And um, one day, he was, she had a restraining order against him, but he was released from prison, and he came straight round to her flat and broke in and um, beat her to the brink of death. He thought she was dead. She nearly lost her, uh, one of her eyes and sexually assaulted her oldest daughter, who was 13, Um, not his child and left so this is a woman I dearly love and I go to see her the next day and she's in hospital and the hospital amazingly the surgeons saved her eye her sight is fine but I go to see her and because I love her what what do I what do I think what do I say do I think oh doesn't really matter that much. No, I can tell you that what love cries out for is judgment. We want justice in that situation. If you love the victim, if you love the weak, if you love the abused, then you can see that a loving God could overlap with a God who would bring judgment to evil like that. So when you read the Old Testament, There's continuity and discontinuity with the new. The discontinuity is the means of God's judgment. So there's a period of time, a limited period of time, where God is revealing himself through his chosen people who are going to bring forth the Messiah, the intent of which is always that that would be a blessing to the whole world, not kept to one ethical people group. 
And in a limited time frame, one of the means of God's judgment is war. And that occurs when great evil, rampant evil, including the abuse and death of young children and women, one of the means of that judgment is is war. Now, sometimes people think, you know, it's kind of ethnic cleansing in some way. Actually, God's judgment is more often against his own people in war than it is through them to other people. It's far more often against them. This is not an issue of of genocide or ethnic cleansing or anything like that. But one of the means of his judgment when there is great evil in a culture within a limited time frame was war. Now, I can read that text today and I can feel this is awful. It's awful that people had to die or people died in, in war in this way. But I can also see how a loving God would judge great evil. I can, I can have a category for that, um, that that makes sense to me. And I can read that text through the lens of Jesus. And so, yeah, I would just say to you tonight, if, that, if, if, those, if those texts kind of trouble you in, in any way, maybe think about it, think about it through, through that, those two lenses. Thank you so much, Amy. We have kind of run out of time. Uh, thank you for all those that submitted questions, and I'm sorry if we've not been able to ask or answer your question. Um, Amy, we've got, I think we had a few slides with some of Amy's books. We do, have some, we do have those books out on the table in the lounge, so if you want to pick up a book, I hope you'll have seen that Amy is highly um, educated on these matters and, and is really... Um, brings them forward in a really relatable way. But I'd like us just to say thank you to Amy. Uh, Thank you.